0: talking in this series essentially about worldview issues. And if our listeners are unfamiliar with that term worldview, everybody has one, and it functions kind of like a set of permanent spectacles on your face. It's how you interpret the world. And as you mentioned, Joe, the Bible gives us a worldview. It doesn't give us the precise percentages of taxing or everything else, but it gives us a, a theology of taxation. It gives us a theology of economics. So we're going to be looking at worldview issues. And I think today, a lot of Christians um, hold to a privatized faith. As you were mentioning, Joe, there's no um, uh, no realization that your faith goes beyond Sunday morning. But what the Scriptures teach us is we're to live all of life, quorum Deo, in uh, in Latin, before the face of God. We're, we're to live and do all things, 1 Corinthians ten thirty one to the glory of God. So, as folks were thinking about midweek coming up, let me ask this question. Why I'll put this to you first, Claudia, and then we'll go to you, Joe. Why should Christians care about things like economics or foreign policy? Um, let, let's go with economics first, Claudia. Why Why should a, a somebody sitting in the pew care about why economics should be studied and what we can learn from it and how it will impact our day-to-day lives?
1: That's a great question and one that I try to convince people all the time, either in class or when I tell them I'm an econ professor, usually the gut reaction is, ugh. It's like, no, no, it's useful. And here's why. Part of it is that it's a way of thinking, which I'll spend a lot of time talking about. But to give like a very short answer to the question is economic means and the control of those means end up controlling the ends. So what we're pursuing in life, which is ultimately about values and what we care about. And so trying to understand kind of the way that we set up rules in a society and that ultimately have economic consequences, it's not just about how much money you can make or, you know, what the growth rate is or what the taxation rate is. It is ultimately about how you can live your life. And that to us as Christians is incredibly important in that can we be open about, you know, how much freedom do we have in economics translates into how much freedom we have in other aspects of our life, including a religious and therefore a Christian life. So that's kind of the, the first provocative claim that I'll make. And then to build off of that is, well, what is economics? So economics as a science, as a discipline, does not tell you what to think. It teaches you how to think about really hard issues. And I think, again, part of the motivation for this midweek was to give people a framework An understanding of how we can come together and talk about tough issues and that's where to me economics comes to the forefront so to give some um some just uh core principles of the economic way of thinking is uh, scarcity is at the center which means that you can't always have everything that you want and that's obvious and intuitive to all of us because we walk around making decisions because we face scarcity so economics is trying to understand: okay, given scarcity, and that we have to make decisions, we face trade-offs in all of our decisions. How best do we choose? How best do we utilize all of our resources? You know, human resources, natural resources, just just the world that we live in. From there, what that sets us up is to, in trying to understand human behavior, because again, that is ultimately what economics is doing. It comes, it is a social science. So again, I mentioned it, you find econ departments in a business school, and that's the application of it. But economics is fundamentally about trying to understand other people and trying to understand decisions that we make. So kind of two core themes that come out of that then, how do economists view the world? One is that people respond to incentives. That is not controversial. That is very basic and intuitive. But it is incredibly, just because it's simple doesn't mean it's not powerful. The second one is much more controversial. People don't like it. Is that we're rationally self-interested. And they think they know what that means. Again, I want to spend some time trying to explain why that is a very helpful way of viewing our own, ourselves, our own behavior, and other people, and, and what it doesn't mean. So self-interest does not mean that everybody's selfish, that every decision is about just about me. Self-interest is about trying to understand that the way that we do make our decisions about, is about trying to make our lives better off, our individual lives better off, and that's that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. Rationality is about that we try to use all available information in making those decisions. Again, that doesn't sound controversial. There's a lot that gets kind of mixed up in what people think rational self-interest means, what it is and what it isn't. Why, again, I think that is important, is that ultimately what we can do with kind of this simple framework, or as you mentioned, spectacles, we say that you know economics is a set of gl- eyeglasses that you can put on. And to me, what that does, when I put on my economic lens, is that it takes a world of chaos and it puts it in focus. I start to be able to understand the world that we live in. Again, I think that's why I was personally drawn to economics. I had never heard of it as a major, as a subject, had no idea it existed until I got to college. And I meant like my first lecture and I was like, whoa, this is amazing. And like, I can study this the rest of my life. Again, not the majority of people's reaction. But I think it was because the time in my life as an 18, 19 year old, um, it was it was it was hard. It was a transition, but it also seemed chaotic and the world just seemed like there was no it didn't make any sense. And then just by. Starting to reframe it through an economic lens, it provided a lot of comfort and the ability for me to just make sense of other people and and the decisions they were making at a micro level or at an individual level, and then to try to make sense of kind of the, the global world that we were living in. And so I, ha- I hope to just impart some of that, is to give a framework for these tough issues that we're facing as individuals, as Christians in a complicated world. That it's not all random, that it's not chaotic, it's not hopeless, and that it actually can make sense. Once again, we just take some core propositions and use that as the lens to to filter whatever it is that we're talking about.
0: Hmm. And yeah, that's so good. And as is, is you're saying these things, and I'm going to put this question to you too, Joe. Um, It reminds me that I think a lot of times when we read the Bible, it's easy to miss that both the Old and New Testaments spend a lot of time talking about money, foreign policy, how we think about these things, and how they apply to real life and how they impact real life. I, I venture to say that if you went to Um, The prophet Isaiah, after King Hezekiah died, and we're all hearing Isaiah this time of year from the prophecies about Christ, and said, Isaiah, are you in passing worried about the Assyrian threat to the north of your borders? He'd probably say, yeah, pretty, pretty worried about that. And the economic interests of Israel, yep. Yep, pretty concerned about that, but the Lord's sovereign. And then I think when it comes to the New Testament, it's really easy to pass over the fact that, uh, statistically speaking, Jesus' two favorite sermon topics are hell and money. Um, And I I don't think that was, you know, on accident. And I'm pretty sure most church growth experts today would say that's not a really good way to grow your church, is that's what you're focusing on all the time. But that was Jesus' method. So he had a lot of things to say about how we think about things and how we think about the world we live in. So Joe, same question to you, but from your perspective, um, why why should Christians care about foreign policy and these issues?
2: Yeah, well, I think that that's a really good friend. I mean, if you want to wonder, were um, was the leaders of ancient Israel worried about foreign policy? You can ask, well, are the leaders of current day Israel worried about foreign policy? And if you are surrounded by people who's you know, Now, even more public, you know, position is from the river to the sea, which is no different than what it was, you know, a couple thousand years ago. And that is that, you know, if you're surrounded by people who don't want you there and want you gone, then you worry a lot about how you interact with those countries and what your economic system is to make sure you're maximizing your own power to be able to defend against those And I think that's a telling thing for us in the U.S. as well, because, you know, look, there's a lot of things wrong in the United States. There's a lot of things that as Christians, we would look and say, I wish this was differently. I wish that was differently. But it is still hard to deny the fact that it is much, much easier to be a Christian in the United States than in basically any other country. And that's not just any other Western, you know, in name Christian country. It's literally in any other country. And so, you know, if you start from the position of uh, most other countries would not be as hospitable to my beliefs as the one I live in today, then it makes you very focused, of course, on protecting the institutions and the infrastructure and everything else that protects your ability to worship freely. But it also makes you think a lot about what all of those other countries, you know, uh, would do if they had the ability to do so. And so, you know, it is in, and that's not only from the sense of how do we protect, it's not just saying how do we protect America from, uh, you know, other nations, whether they be, uh, atheist in the form of communist China or whether they be, you know, from, uh, theocracies in the form of Iran or, or something of that matter. But it's also acknowledging that we have Christian brothers and sisters who live in those countries who face persecution that, you know, not that we just, our kids don't, you know, have to hear about something at school that we don't like, but that they could actually be, in many countries, killed for their beliefs. And so, you know, I think what you have to start with is a position of, we live in a country that is the most hospitable to our beliefs um, that you could imagine, uh, not that there are, isn't room for improvement, but there's a lot to defend that we already have, and that we have many other Christian brothers and sisters who live in other countries that don't enjoy those same uh, you know, uh, freedoms, and we have some level of responsibility to try to use the platform that the United States has as the most powerful country in the world to, where possible and practical, try to improve the lives of the Christians in those countries. And so that then starts to say not only just why should you think about it in a macro sense, but then it, it, if you've served in government, certainly if you've worked with the State Department, as I have, and you start looking at what, when we do use your tax dollars to promote certain viewpoints overseas, what is the, you know, what is the um, main focus of that? And I can tell you, like, when we were trying to combat Chinese malign influence in the Pacific, a lot of these Pacific Island countries, you had, you know, very conservative, heavily Christian mm-hmm. uh, countries. And one reason we could not give them funding, oftentimes, was because they did not allow homosexual marriage. Mm-hmm. And if you talked to many of my counterparts in the State Department, and you said, what is your main objective with these countries, they would say to promote a more open and inclusive view Of gay rights. And I said, hold on. Even if that is an important thing, and even if I agreed with it, which I don't agree with the version that you're, you know, why compared to, I don't know, will you vote with us at the UN to support Taiwan against communist China Mm -hmm. that threatens us, that threatens the rights and freedoms of not just Christians, but all people of faith, Why is the number one thing and the holdup that you're then unwilling to provide development support to these countries because they adopt a view of gay marriage that, never mind the fact, was the view that this country held and many states would still continue to Mm -hmm. purport, you know, and that's then what you're pushing for. So I think also being cognizant of the foreign policy establishment, Mm -hmm. maybe using your tax dollars to promote Mm -hmm. foreign policies that do not reflect your views, and to the extent you pay those tax dollars, you're entitled to a view as to how those should be used. Um, But then the last thing I would say is, so you you can then, it's easy to rush from this, okay, well, we've got all these other bad countries that want to do us harm and that are doing harm to our Christian brothers and sisters in those countries, and we have a foreign policy establishment that is using the tax dollars that we give them to promote things that I don't want, or that don't reflect my belief set to say, you know, what America should do is just spend more and more and more and more to combat these authoritarian, totalitarian regimes. But, you know, and this is where scarcity of resources on the economic side comes in, there's still only so many dollars. Mm-hmm. So if you go put all your dollars towards building an army, towards funding this program, towards trying to tear, and we've seen, you know, having you know, served in Afghanistan and other places, like, you know, you can't, as much as we might want to change the reality that Christian brothers and sisters face in Iraq, in Afghanistan, in Iran, there is only so much through traditional foreign policy, either it be tariffs or military action, that you can do to change, you know, another country. And in many times, the best thing that you can do or that we can do as Christians is to pray for those, you know, to let God do its work. And the last thing I'll close on that I'm always reminded of is one of my Chinese friends who's an incredibly strong believer told me one time, and his name's Paul, because he changed his name to mm-hmm. Paul, and he said, my view is that just as Christ used the Roman Empire mm-hmm. to spread the gospel, the CCP will become the largest Unwitting <laughs> proponent of the gospel in the world, you know, faci- not proponent, but facilitator mm-hmm. of the spread of the gospel because they've taken the, you know, now the second most populous country behind India, but instituted a common language, which me- most people don't, did not really exist in China. Putonghua, or standard Mandarin, was not spoken by everybody in mm-hmm. China until the Chinese Communist Party. The infrastructure, road, technology, otherwise, has created this infrastructure for the spread of an idea of, of ideas like Christianity and the vacuous nature and underpinnings of the CCP as those kind of come collapsing down and people look for some sort of other purpose beyond just you know the pursuit of wealth that oh by the way, the government's just going to come and take away from me at any point anyway. Uh, I think you will see whether in our lifetime or not, I don't know, but I do think that you will see that the infrastructure that they've put in place, God will use that to spread his gospel.
1: First Takes is produced by First Presbyterian Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Our theme music was written and recorded by Wes Breedlove. Our sound engineer is me, Dylan Thomas. Our host is Dr. Gabriel Fleur. S.K. Van Pufflin is our executive producer, and for more information about First Presbyterian or our ministries here, visit our website at 1stpresbyterian.com.